Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you and praise you that um, uh, in the rest of this chapter, Peter goes on to say that it is your word that endures forever because it's true and it's living. Please would you speak to us from your word by your spirit now, we pray. Help us to know what you, who you call us to be as your people and how we can live um, as your people. So um, give us um, uh, minds to understand and hearts and wills to respond with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Kenny said at the beginning that um, uh, kind of uh, Ukraine beat the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest at the uh, kind of very last moment. But I guess given um, all that's been happening, uh, none of us would really begrudge Ukraine uh, kind of winning and that mass popular vote, which uh, kind of um, demonstrates an empathy and a support for uh, Ukraine. Since the uh, invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, there have been something like 12 million people who have been displaced from their homes and have become refugees. And some of those um, Ukrainian refugees have come to the UK in order to find sanctuary. I don't know whether there's anybody in your church who's housing Ukrainian refugees. My church, two families have just had Ukrainian refugees come and live with them. They arrived last Sunday. So we're just beginning to have Ukrainian uh, kind of refugees um, within our community. And of course, those refugees who fled from Ukraine, they are not planning on migrating to the UK. They're not wanting to make this their permanent home. Actually, what they're doing is they are living in hope that they will be able to return to Ukraine because that is the place that they belong. And while they're here in the UK, they won't want to assimilate to British culture and in a sense, you lose their identity as Ukrainian. They'll want to maintain their distinctiveness, maybe their language, their culture, their cooking and food, because they're only planning to be here on a temporary basis before they head home. They'll want to be distinct and different and not to be just like us is they'll want to keep their hearts and their hopes focused on home. Well, I think that's very much a picture of how Christians are called to live in this world. When we trust in Christ, we gain a new home and a new hope. Actually, when we become Christians, even though we don't move anywhere, even though we're not displaced, we do become refugees and exiles because we no longer belong here. When we become Christians, this is no longer our home. We become citizens of Jesus' coming kingdom. And we need to be those who live for that coming kingdom. And that actually creates an inevitable tension because we now belong somewhere else. We're headed somewhere else. We're living for somewhere else. But yet we feel the pressure to be exactly like the society around us, the society we used to belong to. And that's actually the pressure that the Christians that Peter was writing to were facing. He says to them that because you've become Christians, you've become exiles in your own society. It's not that you've gone anywhere, it's not that you've moved, but you don't belong here anymore. You've become like a foreigner because you've trusted Jesus. 
the culture around you increasingly sees you as a traitor. And because of that, you are facing threats of persecution and suffering. The tension seems to be rising. Some of the Christians that Peter was writing to have even been beaten up for their faith, particularly the slaves of non-Christian masters. And Peter says there's worse to come. The Roman authorities around that have kind of largely ignored the church or protected it are beginning to realize what a big threat the Christians are. After all, the Christians won't worship Caesar. They won't be good citizens. And so persecution is on the horizon. And the challenge for these Christians um, uh, in this situation is that 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 pressure might cause them to give up following Christ. It might cause them to turn away from him to turn back to their old way of life. And Peter wrote this whole letter to encourage them not to do that. To encourage them as the pressure rose to keep faithful to Jesus. It says in chapter 5 and verse 12, I'm writing these things to encourage you Testify that this, what you've believed, is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And I think that's what makes uh, 1 Peter so crucially important in our culture at this moment. We're living in a situation in which our culture no longer affirms and supports and values Christianity. There was a a survey published this week that said that um, uh, sort of only 6% of people in Britain identify as practicing Christians. Christians are a tiny minority, and they find themselves in an increasingly hostile culture that has very different uh, kind of values. In our secular, liberal, progressive society, Christians are seen um, as at worst, um, sort of at best a kind of anachronism, and at worst as intolerant or even dangerous. That's particularly because of the historic Christian views on human sexuality. So there are some who want Christian belief and practice to be restricted. They see it as a danger to society that will cause harm. Christians face, for example, kind of pressure in the workplace if they stand for Christian conviction. They face pressure at school if they're concerned about what their children might be being taught. We found ourselves out of step with the world around us. Don't you, if you're a Christian, feel that on a daily basis? Peter was writing to encourage the Christians not to give up under pressure. And that's, I think, a big challenge for us, not to give up under pressure in an increasingly hostile world. And in chapter 1, Peter has been laying the fundamental principles that will enable these Christians to stand firm. He wants them to have confidence in who they are and in their salvation. And then that will enable them to make sense of their experience. He wants them to know that they are exiles. That's the normal Christian situation. He wants them to know that they have a secure, eternal inheritance that has been um, achieved by the resurrection of Jesus. As you've seen in the earlier verses of chapter 1, he wants them to know that even their present suffering is testing and refining their faith. God is at work through it. He reminds them that salvation came through the suffering and glory of Jesus, 
So that's the path that we have to walk. Our lives follow that same pattern. Those are the foundations. You're an exile with an eternal inheritance, and suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. And having laid those foundations in our passage, verses 13 to 21, Peter begins to speak to them about how they should live as those who have believed the gospel and trusted this salvation. And I think we actually see in verses 13 to 21 the fundamental principles of the Christian life, which are then unpacked in detail through the rest of the letter. Here's Peter telling Christians who are exiles how they're to live. What I want to do is to try to distill what Paul has to, uh, Peter has to say so that we will know how we should live as exiles in an increasingly hostile society. And in essence, what uh, Peter does in these verses is he answers four key questions they might have and four questions that we might have. How should we live? Why should we live this way? How can we live this way? And how do we live this way? So how are we to live as exiles under pressure, standing firm in an increasingly hostile world? Well, firstly, how should we live? And the answer to that in these verses is that we should live holy lives. That's actually the big command that comes in these verses. It's in verse 15 and verse 16. Be holy. Be holy in all you do. Verse 16, be holy because I am holy. The way we're called to live is we're called to live a holy life, which is a reflection of God's own holiness. Well, what does holiness mean? Well, I remember growing up when I was a teenager, kind of in Birmingham, I remember being under kind of immense pressure to fit in. What it's like when you're a teenager in your peer group, you want to be accepted, you want to sort of fit in and not stand out as different. You're really concerned about the clothes that you wear, the music that you listen to, the team that you kind of follow. It's hard to be different. My parents weren't really into buying clothes that were kind of fashionable. They wanted to buy clothes that would last. When my parents went shopping for clothes for me, I knew that it was going to be a disaster. It would never be what I wanted. Worst of all was my grandma knitting a sweater for me that I'd be expected to wear. You'd kind of stand out as different. Hard to be different. And if you're different, you might be mocked or ostracized, pressured to conform. Well, the key idea of holiness is that Christians are called to be different. They're called to stand out, not to be like everybody else. The idea of holiness carries the idea of being separated, of being distinct, of being set apart. So the idea is that Christians are not to be like the society around them. Now, that might sound like a negative concept. It's just not being like others. But actually, it's also positive as well. The idea of holiness carries being set apart to be different, but also set apart for something good. To be holy is to be set apart from kind of the world, to be set apart for God. That's what we're to be as Christians. That's how we're to live. Lives that are different because we're set apart for God. Not a purely negative thing. It's a really positive thing. In the context of 1 Peter, we're particularly to be set apart from sin. 
see that in our verse 14. To be holy means no longer living to indulge evil desires. If we were to read on into verse 22, it carries the idea of being purified, of made completely clean. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that you're kind of going into an operating theatre in a hospital. You're going into an operating theatre in a hospital, you're going to have to scrub up. You're going to have to make sure that you're absolutely clean because you're going into a place that needs to be utterly clean. Well, that's kind of what holiness is all about. God is utterly clean, and we therefore need to be utterly clean in order to be in relationship um, with uh, him. It's the idea of being totally set apart from sin, impurity, and uncleanness, to be totally purified for a perfect God. Now, this is a, a reminder to us that holiness is defined by who God is. I wonder who defines what holiness is. Well, the answer is God. As those verses say, be holy as I am holy. Holiness is what God is. He is set apart and completely pure. And his um, uh, holiness is, is his very character. And that's reflected in his law. As we read the Bible, as we read the Old Testament, as we read the, the laws that God gave his people, Actually, Peter here is quoting from the laws when he says, be holy as I am holy. That comes from Leviticus. Those laws show us what holiness means. They show us what it means to be completely pure and clean. It's it's God's commands that reveal what holiness is. But not just his commands in the law, his actions and his words in salvation history. Then, of course, supremely, the life and example of Jesus. Jesus, as God's perfect son, is perfectly holy. He reveals to us what a life of holiness looks like. Holiness is defined by God. And the meaning of holiness, what it means in practice, is actually spelt out in the rest of this letter of 1 Peter. Here in these verses, we're looking at the fundamental principle want to know what that looks like in everyday life, that's what the rest of 1 Peter is about. But what you'll see is that holiness, living a holy life, means loving fellow believers, <clears throat> loving your brothers and sisters in Christ deeply from the heart. It means submitting to the authorities that God has established, recognizing that you have a duty to obey them if it's not inconsistent with following Jesus. It means in all sorts of ways living good lives that are a blessing to others around you. It means no longer living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and idolatry, not going along with the wickedness of the world. That's what 1 Peter will say it means in practice. So we're to live differently. These are Christians and, and us, we're to live differently from the way we used to live before we believed in Jesus. And we're to live differently from the society around us. We are meant to stand out for God as different. That's actually part of our collective witness as the people of God. The world is meant to see we're not the same because we belong to God. And Peter's honest, that may lead to suffering because we stand out a challenge to the world around us. 
Now, as we think about this idea of being different, I think it's important that we recognise it doesn't mean to say that kind of um, every aspect of our life will be different to the world around us. There are some people who just love to be different, don't they? They, they never want to conform. Almost what everybody else does, they'll do exactly the opposite deliberately. You may know some of those people. That's not what holiness means. It doesn't mean you look at what the world's doing and you always do exactly the opposite. There are some Christians who are like that. Uh, and the reason for that is because... The Bible tells us God created human beings. He created us in his image. As human beings, we all have a moral sense that is God-given. And even though every society will be corrupt, every society is rebelled against God, there will be aspects of society that reflect God's holy character. It's not as simple as saying we're just opposite in every area. In the context of um, 1 Peter, the areas where they were to be different was in submitting to authorities. Or sorry, no, submitting to authorities for the, the people in 1 Peter wouldn't have been countercultural. That would have been expected. But not attending the idol feasts, not worshipping the gods in the temple, not going round to your friends when they were holding a drunken orgy, that would have been seen as weird. You see, it's, it's not as simple as um, it's kind of being different in every area of life to the way that others are around us. In uh, 1 Peter, it says that wives are to submit to husbands. That wouldn't have been surprising in the culture. That's what the culture said as well. But actually, as you'll see in 1 Peter, it also says that husbands are to respect their wives as the joint heirs of salvation and see them as completely equal in Christ. And that was radically different from what the culture thought. So in every culture, there are going to be points of tension. We're not necessarily going to be different at every point, but there will always be points where we need to be different to the culture around us. So, For example, in um, our culture, a recent survey was published last week um, that said that 80% of people in Britain are concerned about the issues of social justice and racism. A society that wants to take inequality and racism seriously. And Christians, we don't want to be different to that. I would say, absolutely, that's what the Bible says. But our society would say you also um, uh, have to believe that um, uh, kind of all kinds of sexual relationships are equally valid and ought to be approved and affirmed. Same-sex relationships and transgenderism. But we say, as Christians, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. At that point, there's a point of tension. When the world says stand against racism, we say, absolutely. When the world says anything goes... They, no, that's not what God says. Holiness will mean being distinct and different. It doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be different at every point because at some points the society around us does reflect something of God's character. But there'll always be points where we have to be holy as God is holy rather than live in the way of our society around us. And you notice we're called to be holy not just in part of life but the whole of our lives. Peter um, uh, commands them here, be holy in all you do. Not just in some kind of religious space of life, not just on a Sunday, not just when you're at church meetings. Actually, the whole of life is to be lived in this way. So how are we to live? Well, we're to live holy lives. And that raises the second question, why should we live this way? This is how we're to live, but why should we live this way? And the answer is because of our relationship with God. That's what um, uh, kind of um, uh, Peter says, because of our relationship with God. 
This is to be a reflection of our relationship with him. We don't live holy lives in order to earn God's salvation. But Peter says because we've trusted his promise of salvation and we're waiting for that salvation to come. So we see in verse 14, um, Peter says to them that they're to, uh, to live in this way um, as obedient children. Because as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. In verse 17, Peter speaks about how um, uh, we are kind of um, children. We have God uh, as our father. We call on a father. These verses about holiness are kind of sandwiched between these reminders of our relationship. That um, uh, we know God, we're obedient children, God is our father. So why are we called to be holy? Well, we're called to be holy because we're children of God. We're meant to be like him. It's because of who we are in Jesus. Um, and basically, this is the big idea. Kind of children are meant to be like their parents. Children are meant to be like their parents. Now, I was an, an adopted child. Actually, that means to say that I am utterly physically different to my, ch- my parents. My mother is only five foot one. We don't look alike at all. Actually, I grew up the whole of my life being glad that I wasn't like my parents. And uh, uh, ironically, I've now got four kids, and they're kind of all exactly like me. I find it very strange looking at my children and seeing the way that they're, they're, they're the same. My son is six foot five. He's gradually catching me up. But it's not just that. It's the kind of mannerisms. It's how they sit. It's how they cross their legs. You kind of just see all these things in which you think, that is exactly what I do. Where does that come from? For me, as an adopted child, it's been quite a change of mind to think, actually, it's entirely normal for you to be like your parents. That wasn't my experience growing up. But what Peter is saying here is that as Christians, we're to be exactly like our father. We're to be obedient children, like him. And since we say, like father, like son, and that's exactly right. And actually, I think what this reminds us, therefore, is that to be holy is actually an immense privilege not a burdensome duty. It's easy for us to fall into thinking, isn't it, that kind of being holy is a burdensome, restrictive duty. But actually this reminder that we are children of God and that he's our father ought to show us that actually this is a wonderful privilege that we have as those who belong to God. If we realize who we are, that we've been adopted by God as his children, then we will want to become like him and reflect his um, likeness, which should be what we want to be. Actually, it's what we were created to be, because we were made in his image. When we're being, uh, sort of growing in our holiness, we are becoming more and more our authentic selves. Our society says the key thing in life is to become authentically yourself. Well, the Bible says that um, to be an authentic self is to be in the image of God, Reflect the likeness of your father. That's why we should be um, kind of holy. We're not trying to earn a relationship with God. We're living out a relationship that we have with him and reflecting his likeness. And so therefore, um, verse 17 says that we're to to live um, uh, in reverent fear. It reminds us that our father is an impartial judge who holds everyone to account. What he's saying is not that we're to live in terror of our father, but we are to have a right respect for him. 
Again, that's core in the Bible, isn't it? Ten Commandments, honour your father and mother. You should have a right respect for your parents. It means you want to um, honour them. We should have a right fear of disappointing them. Actually, again, that's why we seek to live a holy life. Because we want to live in reverent fear of God as the Father who wants us to be like him. So why should we live this way? Because we're God's children. That raises a third question, which in many ways is perhaps the most important question. How can we live this way? I mean, this is a big ask, isn't it? To live a holy life in every area of life. You're thinking, how on earth can we do that? How can we live this um, sort of way? Surely this just isn't kind of natural. Peter sort of recognizes that. He says, yes, it's not natural. This doesn't come naturally. It doesn't just happen. You don't naturally want to be different. You naturally want to be fitting in. You don't naturally want to be holy. Naturally, we want to indulge our own desires. And so Peter says, in order to live this way, you have to fight a spiritual battle against your own desires. See that, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived What is it that's going to stop you living a holy life? Actually, Peter says your own desires. That's where the battle's fought. It's it's your own desires of what you want to do. In a sense, you might say your temptations. And Peter says before we trusted in Christ, those desires controlled us. We were ignorant. We didn't realize we were controlled by them. We didn't even realize those desires were evil. But now we belong to God... We're no longer ignorant, and we know that we need to battle against these desires. Now, you might think from verse 15, when it talks about the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, that Peter might be saying, when you become a Christian, all those desires go away. They're all part of the past. That's not what he's saying. If we were to read on to chapter 2 and verse 11... Peter says to them, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Peter is quite clear that when you become a Christian, those desires don't just disappear. The whole Christian life is a battle against them. They war against your soul. And so Peter is saying that um, in order to live a holy life, to be like this, it, it doesn't just happen, it takes a war. Verse 14, you have to be a non Conformist, not living according to your um, evil desires. Now, again, how is that possible? Our desires are strong and, and powerful. How can we possibly resist them? Well, the answer that Peter gives in this passage is wonderfully encouraging, and it's in verses 18 to 20. Because Peter says that if we're Christians, we have been redeemed by Jesus. We've been redeemed by Jesus. I think it's absolutely crucial to understand this. Our salvation as Christians, when we've believed and trusted in Jesus, is more than just forgiveness. It's more than just being declared righteous. God has forgiven us. God has declared us to be righteous, but he's also redeemed us. And the language of redemption is the language of being set free. That's what redemption means. And Peter says that um, if we're Christians, we have been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors. 
In other words, we've been set free from it. In other words, we don't any longer have to live the way that we used to live. We don't have to live dominated by our evil desires. Actually, the picture here that Peter is referring to is the the picture of the exodus in the Old Testament. You know the story of the um, uh, exodus? That was the great act of God's redemption in the Old Testament. In um, uh, sort uh, uh, sort of the exodus, God's people were slaves in Egypt. They had no choice but to do what Pharaoh told them to do. They were enslaved. But God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to worship himself at Mount Sinai. He rescued them from slavery so they could be his holy worshipping people. That's what redemption is. No longer slaves, now free to worship God. And uh, that's what um, God did for them. And how did he rescue them from slavery in Egypt? Well, if you'll know the story, he rescued them through the blood of a lamb. The way they were brought out of Egypt was that God provided a sacrifice, the Passover lamb who died, so that they could be brought out, um, spared God's judgment, so that they could um, come to worship him. Now, what Peter is saying here in these verses is that Christians have a greater redemption than that. They've been redeemed, they've been set free from slavery, and they've been redeemed through a more precious sacrifice, even than the Passover lamb. They've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish and defect. Now, uh, looking back to the Exodus, Peter is wanting them to understand that Jesus has died for them. He's died in their place. He's died for their sins. He's died so they can be forgiven. But his death also sets them free. Peter is wanting them to know that that's what God has done for them. Um, Jesus, who was pure and holy, perfect without blemish or defect, died for them, died for us, so that they could be set free. Peter says that was God's plan from eternity, from even before creation. That is what God planned to do for his people. But how can you live this life? Is it at all possible? Peter says yes, because Jesus has redeemed free from slavery. And actually, this idea of redemption that Peter is speaking about here would have been relevant um, and understandable both to people who came from a Jewish background and people who came from a pagan background. We thought about kind of redemption in the Old Testament when God rescued his people um, from uh, uh, sort of uh, Egypt to serve God. Uh, In the pagan world, slavery was very common. People were kind of owned and bought. They were treated as property. But a slave could be redeemed. In the Roman world, a slave could be set free, so they became a free person instead. Now, the way that happened is somebody had to pay a price to free them. Sometimes the slave would pay to buy their own freedom. But in the Roman system, it was kind of really quite weird. The way that it worked is you actually had to be bought by a god to be set free. What actually happened was that technically you went to the temple, gave the money... The idea was that the God bought you and you then were the slave of the God. What redemption meant, that's how it worked. Do you see the parallel? In the Exodus, God redeems his people from slavery so they can serve him. That image would have been made loads of sense to these pagan Christians from a pagan background. In the same way, if you were a slave, the way you were redeemed was that God bought you 
so that you could be free to serve to God. That's what Peter is saying God has done for his people, what he's done for us in that kind of Jesus. So we've been set free from an old master, from an old slavery. And that's actually the really good news of this passage. When now Peter says, be holy as I am holy, God is not telling us to do something that is impossible for us. We are no longer ruled by our evil desires, but set free from them by the immensely costly price of the blood of Jesus. So, How can we live this way? Well, because of what Jesus has done for us. Because he's redeemed us. And that brings us lastly then to how do we live this way? Yes, it's possible to live this way. We've seen how we should live, why we should live that way, because we're children. We've seen it's possible because of redemption. How do we actually do it? How do we live this life? And uh, these verses are full of action words telling us what we need to do. We need to essentially live out what God has done for us in Jesus. That's how you live. You live out what God has done for us um, in Jesus. So just follow through the action words of what you have to do to live this way. The first thing you need to be mentally alert. It starts with your mind and how you think. Verse 13 um, of um, the passage, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober. Starts with right thinking. In other words, you've got to recognize that you're called to be holy. You've got to remember who you are in Jesus. You've got to determine that that's how you want to live. You've got to kind of, in a sense, um, start with the mind and right thinking. And then you've got to focus on your eternal future. So verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought you when Jesus In other words, what you've got to do is keep looking ahead to the salvation that will come. Remember that you've got that glorious eternal inheritance kept for you in heaven that's secure because of the resurrection of Jesus. You need to live a life orientated for the future. Like those Ukrainian refugees longing to return home, you need on a daily basis to be saying, I don't belong here, I belong to the kind of eternal kingdom my hope set on that what will um sort of cause you to kind of give in to your sort of evil desires and not live a holy life is is being happy with being here and now that you need to be looking for the kingdom to come so then um uh, having done that verse 14 you need to resist your evil desires do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in You've got to think rightly. You've got to put your hope in the right place. That will then enable you not to give in to the evil desires that you have, to resist them, to ignore them so they don't uh, determine what you do. Uh, you then need to live in reverent fear of God. That's um, uh, verse uh, uh, sort of um, 17. Cultivate a right and proper awe and respect of God, a deep desire to want to honor him and live for him. That will help protect you and guard you. I mean that your life is orientated around bringing honor to God. And then lastly, have faith in God. 
That's where uh, Peter ends in verse 21. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Trust him. Trust his promises. Trust what he's done. And at the end of verse 21, Peter brings it back again to that future hope. Trust that the eternal kingdom is coming. How do you live this way? That's what you need to do. Be mentally alert. Focus on your eternal future. Resist your evil desires. Have a a reverent fear of God. And have faith in him and his promises. As I said, I think this passage in, in here, Peter explains the whole Christian life. He explains who we are. We're the children of God, our Heavenly Father. He explains how we're to live, to be holy as he's holy. He explains why it's possible because of the redemption through the precious blood of Jesus. And he shows us what it will take. Living in the light of our eternal hope and not conforming to our evil desires. And the rest of the letter will work that out in all different contexts of life. What that means in church, in marriage, in work, in your citizenship. So the challenge for all of us is this. In in an increasingly hostile environment, will you give up or will you live like this? Will, Will you give up following Jesus and living for him because it seems too hard, too costly, or not worth it? Or will you stand firm in the grace he Peter would say, why give up when you have a glorious eternal future ahead? Why give up when you're the child of a loving heavenly father? Why give up when he's given the blood of his precious son in order to redeem you? Why give up when you have um, uh, that glorious future ahead? This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I think that's the challenge that we're going to increasingly face as God's people, living in this hostile environment. But just maybe you're here this morning and you're someone who's actually not yet a Christian. Maybe you're someone and, and, and you've never lived a holy life. As you've heard this, you, you doubt that you ever could. Maybe you look back on your life and you think of all of what you've done. You feel dirty. You feel unclean. You think, how could a holy God ever accept me? You're like a person who's been wallowing in the mud and you kind of uh, realize that God is like the operating theater and you're thinking nobody would ever let me haven't got a hope. Well, the Christians that Peter was uh, writing to, Peter knows, were once just like you. That's what they were like. You see, they heard and believed the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They heard and believed the news that he was God's king, who died for their sins and had defeated death. They trusted in him, and the result is they'd been given new birth to new Their sins were forgiven. They'd been set free. They were living a new life for God. That was their experience. And wonderfully, that could be your experience even today. Even today, you could become a child of God by trusting in Jesus and receiving all that he has done for you. And there's a warning here that um, uh, sort of, uh, those who don't turn to Jesus will face a judgment. God judges impartially. He knows everything we've done, and he knows every reason why we ever did it. But there's also that glorious promise that no matter what we've done, if we turn to Jesus, he will forgive us, set us free, 
give us a new life and a, a wonderful, glorious, eternal inheritance. Maybe for you, it's not a question of standing fast in the grace of God because you've never received the grace of God. But today you can receive that grace and begin on that journey being transformed to live a holy life that reflects the character of your Father. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for this word, and we find it very challenging, but also really encouraging. Thank you that you call us to be holy because we're your children. And thank you and praise you that you have redeemed us from an empty way of life. May we be those who do not conform to evil desires, but instead live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name.